Hello, mate. <sighs> How you doing? Yeah, not bad, are you? I'm, I'm all right. So earlier I went for a bike ride and I thought, oh, the weather's calmed down because it's cloudy, but it was raining earlier and it's calmed down. And then 30 seconds into starting my bike ride, uh, the heavens opened and I looked like a drowned rat. Yeah, it, it was literally, I went for a cycle today and I knew where that conversation was going. Yeah, exactly. You didn't even need to go any further than that. Exactly. Like, yeah, pretty much. But just before we get into the main topic, which is the corruption um, within FIFA, um, yeah. I, was, I was having a really interesting discussion with my family. I say my family, my dad and my stepbrother. My stepmom was just kind of there. Um, we were talking about um, Alex Ferguson and Man United because okay. he, he was obviously a very successful manager and everything. But he didn't leave Man United in a really good state when he left. You think about the team that was left when he retired, how many of those would should be playing for a Premier League champion? I wouldn't have said many of them, really. I don't know. Uh, I think it's one of those things where they ended up going their, their ways, you know, with uh, was it Tom Cleverley ended up going to a place for Watford now. You've had like Rafael and Fabio who've gone to play in like the Brazilian and Portuguese leagues. Um, so I see your point, but I also feel like with football, it's, it's difficult to say because, of course, we're not at the level that he could see, you know, all these um, footballers and athletes performing at. So I feel like it's one of those things where you have a group of people working for you and they identify who would play good and who might not play well. And you, you, you are right to say that they could have been shit players um, and not the best team that he could have left them with. But also, I feel like him and his knowledge, he could have gotten a as you said, average Man United team to win the league, which he did. So, I don't know, there's a counter-argument counter to that, which um, I, I'm not sure because I'm not an, an entire expert on that. So sure, yeah. I say. And I realise I've just thrown that on you, but you can, you can definitely draw parallels with uh, Bill Belichick, who's the coach of the New England Patriots. They've won six Super Bowl titles in the 20 years that he's been there. And he's done it with teams that have there aren't many like superstars that you see on the new England Patriots. Everyone there's, there's a couple of really good players, obviously that um, do very well for them. But when you look at the team that won the Super Bowl in, I think 2014, I want to say they were seen as a very average team and they had no right to be there. So the point I'm making is that great coaches will get the best out of their team no matter the standard of the player, pretty much. Exactly. And I was just about to bring Porto uh, 2004 and Mourinho went and won the, uh, the Champions League with them. Mm. I mean, yeah, they had decent players, but no, they weren't the, you know, the Cristiano Ronaldo's, the Lionel Messi's, the, you know, those kind of players to make a team stand out. Even when you've got teams that are not at the level of Real Madrid, Barcelona, um, Juventus, Bayern Munich. You've still got players who are outstanding in those years where, you know, when teams win the league, you can almost pinpoint 
if not say two or three players where um, due a due for that success of that team. Whereas with teams like you say Man United's team back then, yeah, they had like Rooney and they had all those players, but other than that, it, it was a bang average team. And like you say, he was just a great coach to be able to get the best out of them. So that's what I did so well. Exactly. And then you see the tail off afterwards where they went off a cliff pretty much. Because didn't they fail to make the Champions League that, se- that following season? Can't say I follow them to. All right, fair enough. No. <laughs> um, but it, I think they have been struggling, haven't they? Like this mm. year, of course, um, as we're recording it, Leicester has lost to Everton. So Chelsea got the chance if they beat West Ham. Um, to go and push for third place and then that leaves Man United to get into fourth place so they, they do look a little bit better um, than they were before and I, you know without jumping on the bandwagon they've got a good academy well yeah decent academy good players coming through so future is looking bright for them yeah yeah for sure I mean it's pretty much a given that you guys are going to win tonight I uh, don't know. I've got it right here playing when we're talking. <laughs> it's it's so we'll not get, looking great. So I'm going to get live updates. Your people listening to the podcast, you know, you're going to get very delayed updates because we're. This is obviously a Wednesday night, and you're going to get it on Friday morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll try not to react anyway. But when when I look over there and my train of thought is gone, you can kind of know what's going on. I'm yeah. going to try and. Ignore it as much as I can, but if there is a goal, I might flip the table and you'll oh, know what's wrong. Fuck's sake. Well, yeah, yeah, we'll know what's happened. And if West Ham does end up at least getting a draw, I will love, I will be loving life. Because everyone else down at the bottom has lost today. And West Ham, oh, right, okay. West Ham are in, you know, we're, we're just above the relegation zone. So we really need to get something from our next couple of games. Otherwise, we are pretty screwed. Not that I have anything against West Ham. Like, I genuinely don't care. But yeah, yeah. I would love it if West Ham got relegated. I'll find it so funny. <laughs> well, just to see my despair. Not, again, not anything against you. I just think the club's been in decline for how many years now. So long. And so long. It's, it's just like a, a thing that I think has got to happen before the owners realise that something needs to change. Yeah, I mean, I could go on a massive rant on like how many things are just going so badly right now. We haven't had a proper striker in a good 10 years. But the thing is, with West Ham, every year you buy a shit striker for an overpriced amount of money. And yep. then it's the same story every year. Oh, my God. Who was that Colombian striker um, who we bought after the World Cup? Oh, man. I can't remember. And, and then we had some really good um, Italian guy midfielder on loan when Allardyce was our manager, and we never played them. Like, why? Why are we doing this? This is stupid. Anyway, before you get too into it, this podcast is supposed to be about the corruption Mm. within FIFA and not how shit West Ham are. As much (laughs) as I would like to talk about that, not today. (laughs) So, um, shall I kick it off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've done all the research, so. Well, I say that. I've done some uni work on that. Um, so basically, what we wanted to talk about is FIFA and how all their illegal and moral and unethical actions 
have played out and how bad it looks on them. So, of course, before the American FBI investigation um, into FIFA, it wasn't really known to the public as such that there was so much corruption within FIFA. Of course, mm. people who liked football, people who, um, like me and you, who are big fanatics, um, I was quite conveniently taught by um, the guy called John Sugden, who was actually a uh, lecturer professor at the University of Brighton. He actually gave me those lectures, and he was the one who first uncovered those um, corruption, I guess, threats at the beginning. In like 2002, he started looking really? into it. Wow. Yeah. So he, um, great guy. Um, and he's found all these things where, of course, all these things took a while to actually start churning and people start realizing it. And having looked at some of the FIFA stuff where they've been getting worse and worse as the years went on, it's been horrific to really see what, what is going on. So without going too far behind, of course, it all really kicked off in 2014 where mm. um, the World Cup in Brazil was um, announced, was it in 2007, 2008? I think they were supposed to announce it seven years before. Um, and one of the venues that FIFA instructed Brazil to build a stadium at was in Manaus. That stadium is in the middle of a rainforest, so there's literally nothing around um, for... There's no major well, cities or anything? No. The, the, I mean, it's not... Uh, you know, a city of a few million, there's, I would probably say a town of however many thousands of people right. in it. Um, and with its location, it was literally in the middle of a rainforest. So if you look, if you kind of picture a map of Brazil, where you've got pretty much the coastline and all the big cities around it, where you've got the northern western part, it's all the Amazon rainforests. Mm. If you literally pinpoint to the nor most northwest of the Brazilian region of like before its borders that's where Manaus is and that's where FIFA went we want you to build a stadium there which is a, a big stadium you know it seated however many thousands of people build it brand new and we have no kind of vision to what it's going to be used for after we don't care you just build it for the World Cup it will be used for three games how much did it cost them to build that, do you know? $270 million. So $270 million, and it was used for three games. Who's, whose money was used, do you know? Probably Brazil. Brazilian taxpayers. Oh, of course. This is where things get good, right? So, of course, you've got the $270 million um, US dollars, where that was just the construction costs. You've also got the maintenance costs for when it's running and when it's completed to actually maintain it because you've built a stadium for that yeah. amount of money you might as well maintain it exactly you're not just going to let it rot no so there also has been some um human costs in it as well which i'll be touching base in a little bit if we want to go into it um so it's not a good start is it no it's really not <laughs> um so going from that basically there's been another research saying that there's no transparency from FIFA to why they're making those decisions. Um, you know, they're a private organization that are paid from public money, from taxpayers' money from those countries to secure those events. And 
when that has been investigated to, um, to, to show those findings, people have started questioning to why it was chosen to be Brazil. So there's of course no evidence as of yet to why it was Brazil. And with the two later World Cups, as we very well know, they wouldn't have been picked just for the sake of being picked, would they? They I mean, would have been given a bit of cash on the side. If you were looking at it objectively, let's look at Qatar, right? Qatar is one of the um, Middle Eastern um, Emiratis, one of those, re it's really hot in the summertime. It gets upwards of 40, 45 degrees. You would not want to be playing football in those, in those kinds of conditions, let alone their human rights record. I don't know if, I, I, w I wouldn't be surprised it, to learn that homosexuality would be illegal in somewhere like Qatar. I don't know it if is. it is. Oh, it, it oh what a surprise. And a Middle Eastern nation that outlaws that kind of thing. I am totally shocked. Uh, I mean, there's only one democracy in the Middle East, and we're not really going to have a, a discussion about this because this isn't what this pod is about. Mm. But what, what I was saying to you about the human costs, so I've got some data from um, FIFA's corruption, basically, um, and uh, how many lives have been lost building sorts of like these venues for the Olympics, for the World Cups. Um, so this data goes from 2010, so it's not really uh, very, very exact in the figures of 2010, like when they were building the World Cup, there was two deaths when they were building um, all these sites. So, of course, with it being in December 2010, that would have been post the World Cup in 2010. So that's not really exact data. But as we go further on, we're looking at London 2012, where there was one death. I'm not sure how that happened, but there was one death um, aligned with um, building the sites and the construction of sites and whatnot. And then we go into um, the 2014 Sochi Olympics, where that's increased to 60, um, funnily enough. Christ. Yep. Massive jump. Yep. And we look at the 2014 World Cup, and that's at 50. So again, you know, it's not great. Mm -hmm. And then we look at Qatar, where, of course, that's still going on, where it's still being built. It's, it's due for 2022, I think, right? Yep. Okay. So this was, I've got all this information in 2015, 2016, uh -huh. I think. This is a good four years old, this stuff, right? So yeah. it could be much higher. The figure for Qatar is 1,200 four years ago. 1,200 so, four years ago when they got the bid accepted in what, 2010, 2011? 2011, yeah. <laughs> what? So in five years, they had a so thousand to put it into perspective, they have To put it into perspective, they had no stadiums there. They probably had a, like a pitch with about three seats on the side of it yeah. for the local football team, right? <laughs> and then now they've, they've had to build like, what, six, seven, eight stadiums? of at least 30,000, 40,000 capacity. That's stupid. And of course, there's no human rights there. They bring in migrant woke, wo excuse me, migrant workers who just come in and then if they fall off, they're like, oh, okay, that's a shame. We'll just, just put some dust over them. It's fine, <laughs> no one will know. Yeah, just put uh, some concrete over the top. It's all good. Yeah, and it's just like... It, 
FIFA does nothing about it because they get their revenues out of it when it all comes out and they've got all these sponsors coming in and saying, oh yeah, well, uh, Budweiser sponsoring this, uh, I don't know, Coke is sponsoring that. We get our money, we don't care. Like we, we don't really need to leave the legacy. We just need to leave the entertainment aspect of it on the TV where people watch it. And that's all we need. I mean, I, I was looking at, I did a little bit of reading before this yeah. and I saw that they generated, I think, $4 billion in revenue from the previous World Cup. Is that Brazil. 2018 or 2014? Uh, in the 2014 World Cup. Right. And that's set to only increase. And FIFA's only source of revenue is from the World Cup. They don't make money from anything else, apparently. I might be wrong. Uh, they... Right, so this the, they had this interview um, with Sepp Blatter before everything kicked off and yeah. things, you know, started to get a bit heated up. Um, the question to him was, why is there one trillion dollars in uh, FIFA's bank account? His answer was, in case we needed it for reserves. It's like one trillion dollars for is, reserves. That is ultra, ultra conservative. In case something really goes wrong. In case we need to save the world. <laughs> Is one trillion dollars not going to basically save you the world? Oh my God. You could, you could basically buy Facebook. Well, yeah. <laughs> not that you would want to nowadays. It's probably no, I know, but that's, that's how much money these people have. And, and it's for what? It's just sitting there, supposedly. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's sitting yeah. there. And where did you get that money from? Because you have no accountability for it and an organisation like you should have accountability for it. So where did you get that money from? Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's just like, you're, you're literally the president of the biggest sporting association in the world and you don't know. How, how does that come across? Anyway, so how do, how did they get to that position? How do they build that power? So I don't know if you know of crony capitalism. Crony capitalism, is that basically... I don't know, go on. <laughs> so it's basically a theory where they have a system of preferential regulations and other favourable interventions based on personal relationships. Basically, what that means Legalized is... bribery. In a way, yeah. What okay. that means is the likes of Sepp Bladder will go and hire um, his mate or his, uh, I don't know, his son-in-law, whatever relative he could have. He would hire him. They would potentially be unqualified and inexperienced just so he would be able to manipulate them and use them for his power and to build that organisation to be more corrupt than they already are. So... There's a load of research being found, you know, investigated that um, chronic, this chronic, uh, not so much capitalism, but more of that crony, chronism, I think they call it, um, that it's a large part of the corruption because people like Blatter, and I'm not just singling him out because there's loads of other people who do it. They will hire a mate or a friend or, you know, a family relative who hasn't got enough experience and hasn't got enough qualifications to do the high job that they're required to but because they will be willing to accept bribes they'll be hired for that job mm. it's the same with um 
nepotism. Where I was about to say it's nepotism 101. Yeah, yes, yeah, but it's basically the same thing. So you look at that and that kind of power of money, that's what influences all these relationships within these organizations. So you get the likes of Budweiser are coming in and they're saying, right, well, we've paid you this amount of money. Um, we could be looking at paying in the same amount of money where, I don't know, Budweiser might not, but another sponsor might have routes where they're not handling their production at the best ways, i.e. human rights issues with some companies like Nike, like Adidas doing all that shit in China for literally no money. FIFA wouldn't put it past them. They'd be like, oh, we get money. We don't care. We'll just, yeah, we can advertise them at halftime as long as they give us the money. My mate is the head of marketing. He'll accept that. Mm. So it gets on from that. And that's where, I mean, in Brazil, it was quite known um, that there was quite a lot of conflict about, of course, the, um, the World Cup first in 2014 and then the Olympics in 2016, where their government has chosen or elected or paid, I don't know what they, they've done, to host these events where the public didn't feel like they had enough hospitals, they had enough schools being built but they went and built all these useless stadiums which aren't really going to leave a legacy they aren't going to help the local public to actually you know benefit and develop from it um where the society thinks that they will because oh brazil can host a good olympics or brazil can host a good world cup so they must be a very good nation but half of that population is living in favelas and poverty where they can't eat and they haven't got enough health care and it's just horrendous so that increased a load of like protests and basically what that whole thing is, is that it's a tool of the healthy where they increase this emphasis of the sponsors to increase where we look at, you know, sponsors in the world cup 2002, it's a hundred percent hasn't got the same amount of sponsors as the world cup in 2018, where the World Cup 2018 is bound to have however many hundreds of sponsors and you know affiliations and all that stuff. You wouldn't have that even in 2014. The more you go back, the less sponsors you have because you've got all these powers like um, the senior management or whatever you want to call them of FIFA, where they're saying, "Well, actually, let's let's continue adding to that one trillion dollars in our reserves because that's clearly not enough to do anything we want to do with it." Well, there's, they've also, they're also adding to that in another way because they're expanding the World Cup, aren't they, to include more teams? So they're, in, they're expanding to include, I think, 48 teams now, which is mental. Yes, it is. Every mental. man and his and dog's going to be able to play in the World Cup soon. Tell me about it. Fucking San Marino are going to get into it next year. <laughs> <laughs> they are, aren't they? So what like this this 48 team world cup right it's again it's a way for them to televise more it's a way for them to sell more match tickets and it's a way for them to eventually increase revenues with those two aspects so with those two revenues increased again it's only going to increase their profit margins where they don't really have to put any money towards building the stadiums or actually hosting these events that the countries are doing where the taxpayers' money goes into it 
and then they're the ones who are suffering afterwards when their tax money has gone on to building a useless stadium that's been used for three matches and now the local football team kick a football around in it and then you've got out of a 30,000 capacity stadium you've got 29,500 empty seats so it's it's crazy what this sort of mentality that well, that's... Have. And of course, you, you've got, of course, you've got Sepp Blatter, who's been banned from football for eight years or something stupid like that, hasn't even been put mm. in prison. And you've got the likes of Michel Platini, where he's the head of UEFA. And he's like, oh, yeah, I didn't know uh, what's his name was, uh, was corrupt and whatnot. So that's bullshit because he was a mate of Sepp Blatter's who was hired to be the head of UEFA. So he literally came from being a footballer to straight away being the head of um, UEFA. So you've got that with so many different positions where the root is so deeply ingrained in these associations or federations, whatever you want to call them, where you're not just going to be able to get rid of it by just picking out one person. You need to wipe out the whole thing with... um, uh, What's his name? Jack Walker. Is that his name? Being another example where you're talking uh, about the caribbean guy who took yeah yeah Yeah. where you know they had a panel of like 12 people there and you think geez only 12 people where are the other hundred or so where uh, you know they know of it and they haven't mentioned it but then again you look at it and you think the fbi have unfolded this corruption in fifa but where have they been since because i haven't heard anything for how many years now no and we're you know I, I I read an article that was talking about um, FIFA's corruption, uh, like when it all surfaced, and this was in late 2015, was when it surfaced, and it compared it to today. And on the surface, nothing seems to have changed. Because who's the head of FIFA now? It's that bald fella. I can't remember his name. I was literally just about to say, I just know what he looks like, and he's a baldy. Yeah, he's it's, it's, it's just some bald man from... It's, well. He's he's supposed to be what Swiss or Italian or something like that. Okay, something. Um, But but they compared him his re-election to that of Sepp Blatter. There was no opponent standing against him. Like he, um, when he spoke at this some sort of FIFA conference, um, it was they they. They compared it to Stalin almost, where um, people people clapped when they were supposed to, and it was a very curated um, event. And you know, he he just was re-elected like, like yeah. very easily. Yeah, and, well, they had that with um, Luis Figo was going to run for president, wasn't he? Um, of Portugal. Yeah, however many years ago. When when it was all unfolded that Plata was, you know, gonna go to prison and then he wasn't gonna be allowed to be there anymore and all that sort of stuff. And a day before the election, he pulled out and I think there was that guy left or there was someone else left and he never ended up running for it. So I wonder if he realized that he was just going to be voted out because he wanted to actually start it fresh. And it could have been corrupt as well. I don't know. I I really don't know. But I feel like him giving interviews afterwards and listening to him, he genuinely 
thought that he could have made a change and maybe he realised that it wasn't going to be possible to be doing it when you've got I don't know, 99 people against you and you're, you're on your own. Yeah, it's, but when, when the whole culture is corrupt, like how do you change that really? It's like it's like in a in a job interview. Um, if if someone asks you, what do you do? Do you go work for a company with a good strategy, or do you go work for a company with a good culture? Well, I'd always say go work for a company with a good culture because mm. that can't be changed overnight, like a strategy can. That's very true, actually. I've I've never thought about it like that before. Not just the pretty face, you know. <laughs> Not even that sometimes. And you definitely are the pretty face. Well, hey, don't flatter me now. <laughs> so what else so, have you got on FIFA? So, I mean, it's just the basics really of, you know, just an observation of where their headquarters are, um, where it's in a tax evading heaven, isn't it? A country in Switzerland where they can just get away with things without paying for tax and I know that they're not the only um, uh, international federation to do that because you've got cricket um, I think they've based themselves in Dubai somewhere um, which is very convenient again for tax and you've, had, you've got others doing the same thing and it's just <laughs> from my point of view it's horrific that these sporting federations are supposed to be looking after everyone in the world playing that sport and all they're doing is just trying to scrape the pennies together instead of actually saying do you know what we'll come out with good policies and we'll do it the right way around no we're just going to go and try and not pay tax and we're going to try and get around things by increasing our one trillion in reserves that we're going to double anyway by whatever minute, whatever year and it's just very sad to think that if that's the top of the sporting tree and you've got if we look at it as society right so we look at these sporting federations as the upper class mm -hmm. where you've got all those executives up there the performers and the athletes are going to be at the lower class, aren't they? They are the lower class who are running about like headless chickens, essentially earning the money. Well, for... they're the employees, yeah. They're the um, the window dressing that actually yeah. are the production. Sorry. Yeah, and w when you look at it in in the way of you know you've got athletes like Ronaldo and Messi, and of course you've got thousands and thousands more where they're earning these sponsorship deals. That's the only real way out of it, isn't it? Where they can earn more income through other ways rather than just their contract with their clubs or federations or whatever sport it may be. So you've got these managers and uh, coaching staff that are the middle class, that they're kind of controlling it and they're essentially dependent on the lower class working and um doing their bit which feeds up but it takes no i'm not really sure what i'm trying to say but i think what i'm what i'm trying to what i'm meaning is that the tree is very awfully placed because the athletes are the ones who are facing the public 
mm-hmm. and they're the ones who can show and entertain everyone. But this, the upper class in this case are running it like they're the ones in control because the athletes can say, oh, I don't want to go to the World Cup in Qatar because how many thousands of people died? And if national teams start to do that, what are FIFA going to do? Because would, that will be a boycott of them basically being idiots. Yeah. You'd need to see, I think you'd need to see a lot of national teams start to protest before you started to see anyone back out. And I can't imagine any footballer in their prime is going to back out of a World Cup because everyone wants to say that they've played in a World Cup or considering how well teams like Germany historically do, you know, they would be, they would reasonably be in with a chance of winning. So would you as a player want to forfeit your opportunity to potentially win a world cup for some, for a, a human rights issue. And selfishly, if I was in that position, I don't know that I would, you know, morally it's the correct thing to do. However, you know, the opportunity to say that you're a World Cup winner is one that, a a potential that you can't really turn down ever. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a World Cup can only come around once in your life. It's one of those things that you you don't know if you'll ever make it. You can get injured right before the World Cup or, you know, the World Cup is such a big thing where club, uh, sorry, players will push out of clubs to know that they're getting first team throughout the whole year so they can have more of a chance to be selected. So I absolutely understand how big a World Cup is. And I think from that, it's more of a, the actual national associations have to push for it more, where I think there was talk of, um, was it? I think it was the English national team saying that they're still going to go to the World Cup. Um, but there was talk of them potentially not going. Um, and they wanted to get other teams to do the same thing. but everyone just went, oh, yeah, we'll just put our heads down and get on with it. Where that kind of mentality, if you don't even raise the issue of, oh, well, we are going to go, but we're not happy with this treatment, we're not happy with what you're doing, could actually make a difference. Well, we saw, we saw a similar sort of thing in Russia in the 2018 World Cup because Russia, Russian football hooligans have a a storied history a storied recent history with racism and racist chants and things and so a bunch of players um i i think raheem sterling was amongst one of them who said you know we're, we're really not happy with this racist abuse that we get and you know you saw a bunch of other players speak out but has anything really changed I know for a fact Russian hooligans go to matches to fight, not to actually watch football. Well, that's like English football fans in the 70s and 80s, wasn't it? They went to fight, not for the football. Yeah. So it it wouldn't surprise me if nothing has changed. And I I see where you're coming from. But with everyone just putting their head down and getting on with it, like it's nothing. You've got thousands of, you know, put, put aside lives lost at the extreme it is lives lost isn't it Mm -hmm. but you've got all these people like i've mentioned with taxpayers money going on these stadiums that are useless in the long run instead of being 
instead of having being built um, hospitals and schools and things that are actually going to last and provide education with for people that don't have the opportunities that's what drives me insane because that's a chain reaction where they're not having a good life and they will die prematurely because they're still living in favelas and they can't get education they're literally you know working at the age of 12 14 just to get a few pennies home and i'm not saying that that that's worse than dying but i'm just saying that it's it's such a awful thing to have that everyone's just putting their head down and not really noticing well this goes notice more this goes back to what i was saying previously where this is why we're starting to see an uptick in authoritarian regimes applying to host uh world cups and olympics because they don't care about the human cost they only care about putting on this great show that putting on this great spectacle and human rights for them are a second issue and fifa won't mind as long as it brings the revenue in mm. so you know it's it's a very worrying trend to see a, a lot more um a lot more authoritarian regimes that don't care about this um suddenly be put um center stage for these types of events yeah i mean not going too far off london 2012 cost us was it 9.3 9.2 billion pounds or something like that um i'm not sure how much it returned in you know revenues for tourism and whatnot but i don't think it had a massive effect so it, it we did put out a good olympics i'm, I'm not going to say we didn't because I, I think we did um but could that 9.2 9.3 billion been spent elsewhere Yes. Would it could it have been spent better? Probably yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. That's I guess my question to the people that are not in the lower class and have to continually work all the time to actually survive. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a question of decision making in these types of situations. Like the most recent situation that I can think of, where people have gone, "Hey, what the fuck." Uh, when it comes to spending is uh, Boris Johnson's plane uh, got a paint job done and that cost the taxpayer 900 grand to get this yeah. one plane done when we've got starving children that desperately need meals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I know what, where you're heading towards with um, Rashford and what he's doing, which mm. um, is, you know, I'm not saying he's doing a bad job. I think it's brilliant what he's doing. But I also feel like some children shouldn't be conceived when their parents can't afford them. And mm-hmm. that's a very, you know, we're getting very political now. So I think we need yeah. to be very careful. But I, I get there's certain circumstances where, God forbid, you know, whatever happens to your parents and the child is left alone and they haven't got food and whatnot, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But I'm saying in some circumstances, we need to be very careful with where we tread because once you start giving, just like we all know with furlough, no one wants to go back to work because mm. they've gotten free money, basically. And that's yeah. the same with getting free food. And there needs to be a very right balance there because it, mm. it, it, it everyone should be given food yeah but also it needs to be 
met for the pe- for the actual children that can't have food rather than those ones who parents can't be bothered to give them food right so so that okay so your concern is, isn't actually so so your concern is is more so making sure the right people are prioritized as opposed yes. to just saying um all poor people shouldn't eat basically which which makes sense it makes perfect sense like i i saw something recently that criticized uh keir starmer who's the labor leader who you know labors the opposition to the conservative party here mm. who are in power right now and he proposed that people who commit benefit fraud um be imprisoned for up to 10 years okay. so and someone was using that to criticize him and i was like well that that makes perfect sense if you commit be- benefit fraud then you deserve a punishment for that absolutely and i think there's quite a lot of furlough that's going to be going off now um hopefully in the next few years hmrc are going to clamp down on it mm-hmm. which is great because i think everyone should be lawfully living as that's what civilization is if we don't have laws and we don't follow them then what civilization do we have mm-hmm. um so yeah going slightly off topic i think we need to be very careful with giving people free things and getting the right balance to actually giving people that need it rather than giving just people things for the sake of giving them things mm. but then obviously you want to make sure that you know everyone has a you know a a good level of live a good standard of living and that's that's where people can perhaps misinterpret what you're saying because you're obviously not saying that every, every child in a poor si- living situation deserves <laughs> i know but some people will sit will hear that and they'll and they'll be like oh dan thinks that children should starve to death and it's like no, no, no. this is a I, nuanced I, discussion I, I i well i thought i clarified that before i started yeah. saying that. what yeah. i'm saying is if you've got someone who gets when they don't need it and i'm not saying furlough wasn't needed because of course it was needed but furlough mm-hmm. in this example is what i'm using yeah where people didn't do anything for 80 percent of their wage mm-hmm. i mean i personally loved it i know everyone loved <laughs> it right and then all of a sudden you have to go back to doing the same thing if not more from what you were doing before lockdown at work because you've got to fill up for those people who haven't returned yet yeah and you're only working for the 20 percent extra which is actually in that instance you're being taxed on or whatnot so it's not really much more mm. and you're and you're having to work i'd rather not work yeah so that's where we need to, to get a good balance because we, we can very easily build a very rotten culture feel where we can expect to just be getting things rather than work for them mm. and that's what i'm saying i'm not saying anyone yeah. should starve or yep. whatsoever i'm just saying people we need to get the right balance of who we give it to exactly yeah you've got to be yeah yep you've summarized that perfectly really and hopefully what? that clears up for anyone who's trying yep. to kill me now exactly in five years we're going to get cancelled and you and you can get fucked you can get fucked by the way so dan what what else have you got on fifa um well uh, i can have you exhausted it yeah i think i can continue ranting about them for hours on end but i think that will probably be enough for today where we've we've kind of touched on some theories and what they do Mm. um how they run 
and how bad they are really so hopefully anyone who's listened to us enjoyed this hopefully i didn't rant too much to bore you to death but if you have stayed listening to this thank you very much for listening to me um i very much appreciate it so tune back in on the next pod whenever yeah. that's gonna be yep thank you if you mondays got to this point. absolutely mondays and fridays thank you if you got to this point and we'll see you again next time cheers <laughs>